Now we direct your attention to the Word of God, to the book of 1 Samuel. We're looking at the ministry of Samuel, and we're looking in chapter 7, and I'm going to ask your permission to read about eight verses that are not in your text that will give us the complete story. I want to read the, really the whole story. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kareth Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Sheen, and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here we have a chapter that deals exclusively with the ministry of Samuel among God's people. We looked at Samuel a few weeks ago. We saw that the little boy was born of the, of the um, barren womb and he was dedicated to the Lord by his mother. And about age three, probably, he went to serve in Shiloh at the tabernacle there with the old priest Eli. And he had come along there to learn and to study Finally, the Lord had called him into ministry. And then you heard the story of how Israel went out to battle and they took with them the ark and the ark was captured and the ark was taken back to Philistia and it was moved around through the cities and the Lord smote the God of the Philistines and the hand of the Lord was heavy, the scriptures say, on the Philistines. It's interesting, the word glory means heavy. And when they stole the ark in the first place, the scriptures said, Ichabod. The glory is departed. There's no glory. But there was still some heaviness. The heavy hand of the Lord moved the Philistines to return the ark. And they removed the ark back to a border town right there on the edge of Israel. 
to a town where it has been now for about 20 years. Now sometime during this 20 year period, probably very early in this period of time, the young Samuel came of age and began to prophesy. There was no ark in Shiloh, so he could not continue the ministry there with the tabernacle as Eli had. So he had a circuit ministry. And it's mentioned there in the very verses at the end of the chapter that we did not read. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And this is how he did it. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and to Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all of these places. So he had a circuit set up there in that region, not far from Jerusalem, in the lands of Benjamin and, and Judah. And he would go from one place to the other. And there he would preach, he would teach, he would judge the people, he would rule. Then he would move around to another place and another place. And these places over the years maintained their integrity as places of teaching. In fact, when we get to the days of Elijah and Elisha, we find that two of these three cities had schools of the prophets there. And he would prophesy and he would work. And as he traveled this circuit, teaching instructing, judging God's people, trying to turn them to the Lord in his preaching and in his teaching and in his administration of the sacrifice and all that he was able to do, Samuel began to notice that there was a longing on the hearts of the people. And that's what that verse really means that started us out there in, in verse chapter 7, verse 2. It says, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The word lament here it means to pursue, to long for, to pursue with a desire to have. As Samuel taught the people, he detected this people coming out of a very dark phase of Israel's history, a time when the glory departed, a time when Israel was scattered, when they were oppressed and ruled over by the Philistines and their enemies, really a time of suffering in Israel. But in that, Samuel, with the pastor's heart that he had, began to see that there was a longing, there was a desire, there was a lament for God for God's power, for God's presence, for God to work in their lives. And there was a turning of their hearts. He began to see it. And what's going to be described next is a great revival in Israel. But the scripture says, a long time passed. It's one of the saddest phrases in scripture. How long does it take? How much time has to pass before God's people have a longing for God, feel the emptiness of their lives and the need for divine power and come to the place in their lives when they're hungry and they're ready and they're beginning to see their sins and they're getting sick of their sins and they're beginning to be granted the glorious gift of repentance. And this is what Samuel detected as he went around his circuit. He also went back to his hometown. Remember, he only lived there three years. He probably had very vague memories of his hometown of Ramah. But he went back there and he set up his operation. And he built an altar. And he taught the people. And he prophesied from there. And people came to see him there. 
It's interesting, Samuel's kind of a model for both the itinerant preacher that works a circuit that travels all over the place, and the settled preacher that has a place of ministry where he ministers in a particular location and people come to him and he has a flock around him. Samuel saw in the hearts of the people. And so Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, he began to see it, but he knew they needed a little bit more instruction a little bit more preaching. They needed to understand a little bit more about repentance. Repentance is not just regretting the mess you're in. Repentance is not simply looking around and saying, I have really messed things up. I need to make some changes in my life. It's at least that. It may start there. But repentance goes beyond regret. It goes beyond remorse. Where he says, I am so sorry that I have done the things in my life that have brought me to this sad condition, that I've made poor choices, that I have taken the wrong path, that I've been disobedient, that I have not done what I should do. And now look at me, look at the mess I'm in, look at my marriage, look at my children, look at my finances, look at what's going on. It may be worse than that. You may be prospering and in health and wealth and be so blind to your sin that you're more desperate than you realize. Beginning to turn to the Lord. If you're returning to the Lord, if you're turning to the Lord, it has to be a passion. There has to be something in your heart that moves you beyond just regret and remorse. There has to be a godly sorrow for sin. A sin that says, my transgression is ever before me. A sorrow that says, finally to the Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Israel's repentance began to be stirred at that deepest level. They realized that ultimately the problem was that they had not honored their God. They had not even kept the first commandment to have no other gods before the Lord God in their lives. They had idols, and we won't talk about the idols that they had this morning because it's a nasty subject and we can't hardly talk about it in a mixed multitude. But their gods were sensual. Their gods were materialistic. Their gods were pleasurable. Their gods were things that they were addicted to, and it was hard to break that cult in their life. But Samuel told them, if you're going to return to the Lord, you've got to do it with all your heart. And that means a change of heart, a change of mind. It even goes beyond that. It means a change of affection. And then you have to put away the false gods. Put away your idols. Put away your affections for those things that are not pleasing to God and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. I couldn't help but note a remarkable parallel between the ministry here of Samuel and that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Samuel were very similar. They both came from the barren womb. They were both born to the household of the priesthood. They were both dynamic preachers. They were both prophets called of God to be special. They both had the Nazarite vow upon them. And they both preached to large crowds. We see in the very next passage there that he told the people to gather together, all Israel, together at Mizpah. And they gathered in a great assembly, a great convocation. 
Bible tells us that all Judea went out to hear John the Baptist. And John the Baptist preached. And what was the theme of his sermons? Do you remember? Repentance. Repent. That's what John the Baptist preached. And that's what Samuel's preaching. And I don't see why any preacher needs to change the message. Because the message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was at hand in Samuel's day. It wouldn't be long before God's kingdom would have a king and then even another king, king more pointing to Christ and a man after God's own heart. That's where we're moving is to King David, you know. The message is repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He called for fruits. Remember John the Baptist says, bring forth fruits, meat or suitable for repentance. It's interesting that repentance will not get you salvation. Did you know that? Repentance is not a merit that earns you forgiveness. Repentance is necessary for you to see your sin and to turn from them, to change your heart, to change your mind, to have your affections renewed. Repentance is a necessary condition of salvation, but it's not sufficient. The Bible says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And there's no promise of salvation. You just owe repentance of God whether He ever saves you or not. Whether there's any salvation or not, you still owe to God a repentance for how you have violated His laws and how you've walked in your own paths and you have not kept His commandments and you've not loved Him with all your heart and you've not served Him with all your might. You owe Him repentance. But repentance is necessary. You will not have conversion. You will not have salvation without repentance. And that's what the Lord's going to do here in this passage. He's going to save Israel. The word salvation and deliverance is used several times. He saves Israel from their enemy. And their enemy is the Philistine domination, that pagan godless domination that was over their life. In other words, God's going to free them from their dominion from their enslavement, the thraldom of sin that has its grip on their throat that's dragging them to hell. God's going to break those bonds and He's going to set them free. Later in the passage, which we didn't read, I hate skipping so much of the Bible, but we seem to have to do it to get through in the morning, said that there was peace and there was reconciliation and there was restoration, there was rebuilding in Israel. And that's what happens when we repent of our sins and God gives us repentance. He gives us the gift and He gives us all the benefits of repentance. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are eradicated. Do we lament and long for revival? in our hearts and in our lives and in our families and in our church and in our community. There's a couple of interesting things they did here when they had this great convocation at Gilgal when Samuel called all the people together. They had a couple of things they did. One is it said they poured, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. What in the world's going on there? <laughs> well, you'll have a hard time if you read some of the better commentaries because Really, nobody's sure. And I love to step into those places where we don't really know for sure <laughs> and just sort of insert there a sanctified speculation. 
What was going on was the water rituals. Every time you had repentance in Israel, you've got water rituals. You've got the pouring of water out. You've got all kinds of water, the clean water, the pure water, the living water. And every time there's a purification ceremony in Israel, it involves some kind of water being poured out in, upon the subject and poured out upon the people and poured out upon the, the thing that it is. That's what you had in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a priest and that's what he was doing at the Jordan River was he was doing the great cleansing rituals that the priests did. Pouring out the water upon the people as they repented of their sins. A symbol of the cleansing power of God, the blood of Christ. The second thing he did was when the people called on him to pray, he took a little, the Bible says, a young nursing lamb. According to Exodus 22 and Leviticus 22 also, that was the firstling of the flock, a little male lamb, seven days old, tiny, innocent, pure, harmless, gentle lamb. Oh, that's Christ. That's a picture of Christ. If this pouring out of the water is the cleansing of the Spirit of God upon us, the slaughter and the burning, the shedding of the blood and the burning of the whole offering. Put that little lamb, and I don't imagine it took long to burn that little lamb all the way up. But that's Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is a picture of the one who stood as a lamb before his shearers was silent. He opened not his mouth. You know why Jesus didn't open his mouth and make a defense when he was accused of all that he was accused for and sent to the cross? Because he was bearing our sins and there's no excuse for our sins. He couldn't make a defense. There was nothing to say. He, he stood there suffering before Pilate and in, in the beatings and the scourgings and the crucifixion and all the ordeal that Jesus went through. He was bearing the weight of our sin and the guilt and the shame of our sin in his own body on the tree. And there's no excuse for sin. There's no defense for sin. There's nothing you can talk back. And there in all of his purity and all of his sinlessness and all of his innocence, he just took it. And he, like the little lamb, gave himself wholly. I like this, the word here that says a whole, an entire, a complete burnt offering. And then what Samuel does is he begins to pray, and he prays for the people. You can't come to God by any way except through the blood. It's the blood of the atonement. It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of this little nursing lamb. This little without blemish, firstling of the flock, coming and giving himself. That's what opens the door. That's what paves the pathway to the presence of God. That's what brings down the power of God in prayer is the access that's been made by Christ, our priest and our sacrifice. So now Samuel can enter boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy to help 
in time of trouble. And the Bible says here, and the people said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. This is a little different than the group that met a few years back and took the ark and was going to fight the Philistines in their own strength. With all their godlessness and their immorality and all of the perversion of their priesthood. And they were going to do it in their own strength. It's a different story now. You have God's people on their face before the Lord. You have God's people in worship. You have God's people in power. The power of God is going to deliver them. And they cried out. And I love this little verse right here. It says, Samuel took the nursing lamb and offered it as a whole bird offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord. Have you ever cried out to the Lord? Have you ever been in, when you're on your face, with like Jeremiah, your face is a fountain? pouring forth water and tears, tears of sorrow, tears of repentance, tears of petition and longing, crying out before God, God, I need that. I want this. I must have this for my my sake and for your sake. Oh, Lord, do this for me. Help me, deliver me. I cannot do it myself. And when it's all over, there'll be tears of joy and I will shout and I will come to the great congregation and I'll testify that you have done that for me. When I was at camp as a kid, we sang whisper prayer in the morning, whisper prayer at noon. There's nothing wrong with whispering a prayer. But every once in a while, you've got to cry out to God. You have to call upon Him, knowing that He hears. That's what it says. It's, I just love the way this put And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. It's an intercessory prayer. It's on behalf of Israel. He's praying for the nation. He's praying for their salvation. He's praying for God's people. He's praying for the very elect. He's praying for the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. God's people need to be spared. They need to be delivered through all of this. It says, and the Lord answered him. (laughs) Because while they were having this great meeting, the Philistines were arrayed for battle and were coming upon them. And just like in Joshua 10, where the Lord fought for Israel, where he sent great hailstones, where he sent great panic where he caused the sun to stand still and other great miracles God did to enable Joshua to be victorious over the enemies in that day. Generations earlier, God steps up on behalf of his people this time and just simply makes a way, turns the battle, flips the switch. The power of God in a situation is inexplicable. I get a little concerned when I see people trying to work it up and gin it up. Some of the most dynamic worship services you'll find anywhere in the Bible were pagan worship services. Start with the golden calf. Then move maybe to the altars of the prophets of Baal in Elijah's day. You want dynamic worship? You can have it in an ungodly way. But if you want the power of God, you've got to cry out and ask and plead and long and lament. 
And the Lord is standing there ready to answer. I imagine when the Lord answered him, it didn't take him long, did he? The Philistines are approaching. The people are frightened. Samuel's praying and crying out to the Lord. And the Lord acts and turns the battle back. I don't know what the battle is in your life, but I'm telling you, the Lord can turn the battle back. 